From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia. I'm Sage Tangway. Back in September, Brown College, in partnership with the Virginia Quarterly Review, hosted George Butler, an award-winning illustrator who has reinvented the role of the artist reporter, drawing conflict zones, climate issues, and humanitarian crises for the news in pen, ink, and watercolor. After a presentation of his work, Jim Cohn and I were fortunate enough to sit down with George for a full interview. My name's George Butler. I'm an illustrator. I live in London and I'm an artist reporter. So I travel to different parts of the world and make drawings uh, in ink and write down the stories of the things in front of me. So what comes first, art or journalism? Art came first because that was what I was good at. It's what I enjoyed and because that's what I studied at university. I studied illustration at Kingston University. Mm -hmm. It used to be Kingston Art College. And then... The stories inevitably followed because the places that I went to draw were much more interesting than just pen and ink drawings. And the people, their stories in a way have become more poignant and more powerful than the process of drawing them. Were you conscious initially of the evolution that you were going through from illustrator to illustrator journalist? Was that a deliberate decision? It it... was a deliberate decision. I loved oral historians like Studs Terkel. I loved reportage illustrators like Paul Hogarth Mm -hmm. or Ronald Searle or Franklin McHannon in Chicago. So it was an aim to be like them, but I don't know whether I've done it yet. (laughs) So I think it's sort of evolving, and um, my work is definitely not the finished article. Well, that's just good news for all of us. (laughs) But part of the reason that I ask that is that it is quite a departure from the norm. You don't find a lot of journalist illustrators. Mm. Maybe you used to. I think it used to be the norm. Yeah, Yeah. I think it used to be. Well, there's no space for us in newspapers alongside the advertising. And it's not fast, it's not particularly sexy, and it's not particularly sensational. So typically, I think we kind of lose out. There's no career path for a special artist, you know, who might have been sent to the Crimean War. Right. But, uh, and we've got these efficient means of documentation, like yeah. photographs. And they're brilliant. Sound recordings. And mechanical and far... Easily reproduced. Yeah, and we, we've all got them. This is just an alternative. It's more than just an alternative, it seems to me. It's an alternative, but it's also, if you think that your passive consumption of news means that you're actually less connected with the people that you're reading about than you used to be, or you want more, then I hope this isn't an antidote. Well, it's that sort of passive consumption Mm. and connection that I find coming to mind most often when I read your work and appreciate your artwork. Because frankly, I kind of want to hear your view of it, but (laughs) I, I must tell you that well, I'll give you an example. There's a, I think it's, oh yeah, the Kharkiv Clinical Hospital. Yeah. Holy crap. There are two moments in the illustrations from that particular experience that you had that jolted me. 
and they both have to do with eye contact with your subject. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so there's a surgeon that you at least illustrated eye contact with. And yeah. then in another part of the piece, uh, yeah. there's a patient yeah. um, with whom you make eye contact. And here's the thing. I'm just going to put it together for you, and then I just want to okay. hear your view. If you're capturing eye contact with a photograph, it's really eye contact with a camera. Mm. But if you're illustrating eye contact, it's eye contact with you. Yeah, sure. And somehow that comes through for me. You know, when I look at the illustration, mm. I feel this impact of intimacy. Like yeah, it feels it is, it? something more – you're not – just observing yeah you're right it's more than that there's a sort of beginnings of a relationship and i think the drawing demands uh, i hope that drawings in general demand this the, the viewer looks that for a little bit longer you wonder who the artist was as you say you don't often wonder who the photographer was that time was also an extraordinary time because it was the month that followed the what they now call the full-scale invasion of ukraine i was on the fourth floor of the, yeah, the clinical hospital in Kharkiv, hosted by this uh, neurosurgeon father and son duo oh, yeah. who were uh, called Alexander and Carrillo. And so it, in one sense, we were drawing this surgery and the electric drill wasn't working, so they drilled in with a hand tool to remove this piece of skull and let all the bad blood flow out in the hematoma. And he was yeah. sort of standing there, like, inviting me over to see, to see if I would sort of shy away from it. So that sort of went on. This bloke called Dennis, who I never met, who was having his head chopped open in the middle of a war zone. And then there was this little boy upstairs called Vladimir, and I sat with him and his father. And their mother had been killed in a friendly fire accident. She was 34. And in the same accident, this bullet was stuck in Vladimir's head, and he was learning to walk. And that was incredibly moving. And his dad sat with me, and we chatted about his life and how he was trying to rebuild it. It's sort of eye contact and a handshake and it allows you time to be with someone, you know, a little bit longer, perhaps. And it requires time to create those works of art. And also time is not something that we have anymore. And so really, maybe this is just me sort of self-medicating, like wanting to be slow and spend time with people and that's not possible in a sort of busy life in London. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because yeah. the thing that I feel most vividly from your work. And it's not merely the drawings, but also your reporting, which is on one level, very, very rigorous reporting. This is what it was. This is yeah. what I saw. But on the other hand, I am often drawn to your notes, yeah. your handwritten notes yeah. in the illustrations. And I think the common theme that you bring in with such power is intimacy. Yeah. Well, I feel very close to whoever they are normally. And it is an intimate moment to sit and draw someone. There was one in the same hospital, actually. I bumped into this architect in the corridor. He's called Sergei. And he was in his house when it was bombed. And I said to him through one of the nurses who spoke English, can I draw your picture? And he'd grinned from ear to ear and said, uh, yes, but I will also draw you as well. Uh -huh. And so a date was arranged the next day and we sat in this empty wardroom. No one in the wardrooms because they, everyone was in the corridors because they didn't want the windows to blow up on them. And he'd drawn me a picture overnight of a Russian tank about to run over a little girl holding a Ukrainian flag. Then we sat opposite each other and we drew. And we didn't really speak very much English. He understood a little bit, but he couldn't speak it back. 
So we just made these two pictures of each other. And it, we've been friends ever since. But he doesn't have an email and he doesn't have a mobile phone, so he has to go to his house. But it was the beginnings of a shared moment, and there's a real fondness. I'm very interested him. professionally and artistically in hands. Mm. And not just for sort of their form, but for their function, right? Yes. Um, they're very useful. They're for clasping and holding. But the sensory information that you get from your fingertips is so much greater than mm. really any place in, in your entire body. And what you're doing when you're drawing or working with almost any kind of artistic medium is you're touching. Yeah. And that seems also to underscore some of this theme of intimacy in what you do. Yeah. And if you teach drawing, then that coordination between your eye and your hand is the thing that you're trying to make automatic and you're trying to feel the kind of depth and fluidity and a sort of sense of volume and shape in whatever's in front of you. And there's a powerful connection, isn't there? This must be something deeply rooted in the human condition to want to interact in that way. Yeah, and that in fact comes out not only in the content that you select to draw, but in the fact that you have a style, right? the famous Picasso quote, that your style is the difference between a circle and your drawing of a circle. You know, you can see your hand. That's good, isn't it? He's got one for everything, hasn't he? That guy is such Um, a pain (laughs) in the ass that way. Yeah. One of the things that really hit me (laughs) was in your drawings of Becca and Syria, the the Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Yeah. Sure, the act of drawing that maybe in comparison to Photography. I don't, I'm not dissing photography. I'm mm. just saying that there's another level of intimacy, I yeah. think, to what you're doing. That's one thing. But also what you select mm. as your subjects. And here, one of the things that just hit me in the sternum about your drawings of this refugee camp were the items that people yeah. took with them. And so tell me about that process of selecting those kinds of – describe what they get, were. Too. I always get a lot of credit for this sort of being very selective. So just to explain to people who can't see them, but I guess the drawings are on a big white sheet of paper. They're in pen and ink with some sporadic watercolour. And a lot of the page is often left white. So they get this sort of sense of composition, a kind of a flow from left to right or up and down the page. And I think one of the reasons that... Well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're designing as an illustrator, it's nice to have white space to fit text around. And so art directors like that. Secondly, I think I'm very limited by my nervousness not to make any mistakes. So in a lot of those images where you're under pressure to make drawings of little boys with no legs or, or you know, high-pressure situations in Syria, then I'm just drawing as little as possible. And once I think I've got it on the page, I'm terrified of ruining it. And so that's some black-white space left. But it comes back to your kind of consciousness question. I am now aware that that white space is actually quite a powerful tool, like it is in music, like it is in poetry, the blank space for the viewer to impose their knowledge on top of it. And sometimes that's easier to look at or easier to spend time on, especially if this situation is a sort of difficult one. Well, and that was obviously an extremely difficult situation, like so many of the ones that you found yourself in. But the viewer has a bit more time, don't they, I think, just to sort of sit with it and it feels safer. It's been through me as a sort of lens. Yeah. And then you can look at it safely. And somehow with that space that's available to us, it's a little bit easier is not the right word, but to sort of apprehend this teddy bear that you've yes, drawn that was, that in was, the yeah. context of the shocking atrocities that were occurring. Yeah, so I drew a set of images of all the items that families had bought from Syria when they fled over the hill into Lebanon, and they now lived in temporary shelters in the Bekaa Valley. 
and each family had a set of items that they had left with. Sometimes it was their passports that had now run out, the clock on the wall, which was the only thing they could find in the rubble. They were the items that they weren't planned. It's not like they packed up for a week's holiday and took all the things right. they needed. Right. They were the things that were left in their pockets when they couldn't get home. They were things that they found in the car, which they had to abandon. Um, they were things that they sort of half planned to take, thinking that they'd go home in a week. So you had like the remote control that was in the box that the torch was in. They needed yeah. the torch, so they took the whole box. They had all those sort of things that we find in our kitchen drawers at home, the like broken Nokia batteries and broken lighters and the tea set, obviously, that had to go in. And then the kids also brought their own things. And in the image you're talking about, that was two big teddy bears. For me, it was almost too intimate. Mm. It almost felt like, oh, my God, am I allowed to have contact with these objects mm. that were so much a part of just their life yeah. in this end? So bravo. I mean, I don't remember often feeling that way, encountering yeah. a piece of journalism. I think, I mean, really, we should have collected them up and put them in a museum to remind everyone what that might have been like. But I guess, in a way, I was trying to protect us all from in that room, from me having to sit opposite them and draw them. So it felt, it's okay, we'll just get your belongings together and draw yeah. them on the floor. That's safer for everybody. I mean, I may be imagining it, but some part of that feeling seems to come through. Yeah, I think it does. I yeah. mean, when I think about them... They're not things that anyone's ever wanted to buy. So thankfully, in my studio in London, just sort of a nice flick through the drawings every now and then, trying, trying to find something, and then I see them there. And... Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes up as sort of perpetual dilemma in photojournalism is death and <laughs> photographing mm. death and the maybe more sort of graphically violent aspect of what's inextricable from the kinds of situations that you find yourself in all the time. Yeah. Now, I think you've been super successful in conveying, you know, with real emotional force, the sort of humanity yeah. of those situations. But I wonder if it has come up for you, this question. From a photography point of view, there's always a drive, isn't there? The industry to kind of demands a more and more shocking image. So often those pictures are taken without necessarily knowing whether they're going to be published or not. And sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. And sometimes they change the world. Yeah, and so the... The, the little boy, boy on the on the beach. Or Kirby, the... Yes, for example. I think it's proportional in that sense. The, the message you're communicating has to be one that is worth sort of being in that moment. But there's a bit more let off with illustration, isn't there? Because I guess I'm limited by my kind of ability to make it completely horrific. So there were bodies in Butcher that, you know, lying on the side of the road face down, or some of the naked Russian bodies that were stripped and left there as a sort of sign of disrespect that perhaps wouldn't have been tasteful to stop and draw, although I could have. But the bodies being lifted out of the graves on that day outside of St Andrew's Church felt like, even though it was photographed perhaps more than anything else, felt like a important and a moment that we should be telling and remembering and acknowledging, even though it, it is sad, but to do it respectfully and through an illustration. And Yeah, it is a fine line, and I think circles us back a little bit to that intimacy that we were mm. talking about earlier. There's an element of intimacy that creates a danger of being extractive, right. you know. I don't think a lot of journalists are particularly cynical. And I don't know if you've seen yeah. Joe Sacco's work. Yeah, great. I haven't had an opportunity to talk to him, but he's great. clearly went all in. Yeah, and brilliant. Those depictions, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I think often some of the powerful things about being an illustrator in places like that is that it is unthreatening and people can see what you're doing and also they perhaps don't take it very seriously. Yeah. They think it's just a foreigner with a pen and ink. Well, it does seem kind of ridiculous from a certain perspective, right, in a war zone. Yeah, completely. And that also should be acknowledged not to be taking itself (laughs) too seriously at any one time, I guess. Staying with the theme of intimacy a little bit, Mm. but maybe taking a different perspective, one of the things that I thought of looking at your various uh, pieces was a Bosnian journalist named Najara Amedasevic. You know? Well, she is quoted in Sebastian Younger's Tribe Mm. book, and she was a journalist who sort of went all in, embedded herself in Sarajevo during the, the Bosnian conflict and during the very worst of the worst. Yeah. And... In her reporting, she describes this weird emotional contradiction, which was that, I mean, she says, on the one hand, she does a little fake out. She says, war turned us into animals. But what she means by animals is that we compulsively shared everything that we had with everybody that we were in contact with, and we were constantly cooperating and vibrantly there for each other Mm -hmm. in a way that felt strangely wonderful. And she has this line where she goes, I found myself writing about this in a way that was sort of longing for that time again. Yeah. And she's like, if you're longing for that, the world must be pretty fucked up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you experienced or saw anything like that, that human reaction to um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same subject as Anthony Lloyd's book, which is called My War Gone By. I miss it so. Ah, I didn't know about that same, book. Um, same and, and Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell is yeah. the same kind of thing. I think that some of these moments are often moments when it's sort of easier to feel something, whether good or bad, kind of high emotion right on the edge. Often people describe it as sort of feeling more alive, which is, I think, sometimes a bit crass. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that there's a sort of energy and an addiction to feeling all of those things, whether it's close to people or adrenaline rush. I don't know whether I've necessarily feel that. I think that the places that I've been, I've always, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I think that I've never been under any misconception that places like Ukraine or Syria are anything but complete hell and that they're everybody's second choice and that yes. civilians are only the people who ever really lose out and you only have to sit with people for a short time but to realize that that is the case and that you, they'd love to not to be there and you also feel guilty about being there for work or for whatever reason. So there is a real conflict. There's another part in Anthony's book which is always talking about, it's a great line, it's about no matter who you are, whether you're an NGO worker or a consultant or a soldier or a volunteer, everybody wants a piece of the action. And if any of you are sort of trying to make up an excuse why you're there and it's sort of completely altruistic or philanthropic, then you're only sort of fooling yourself. And I think that is the case. Yeah, Metasevich me, makes a very similar yeah. point in her own ruminations about yeah. her feelings of conflict and, and discomfort. For me, it's not, an, it's not necessarily an adrenaline rush. It's more this chance to feel close to strangers and to sit and listen to their stories in a place that I would never have otherwise known. That's the reason I keep going back to them, to be allowed to be that close, I think. Could you articulate what it is you hope, if anything, to do for them? Yes. I think the stories of individual civilians who history would have otherwise forgotten, Madame Olga and Vladimir and Tatiana and Denis and both Sergeys in Ukraine, 
I think that there is value in telling those stories. And I think that it's so easy to get caught up in tank tracks on the tarmac or the bombs exploding on the horizon or the sort of smart one-liner that we see on the news from whichever president we're watching. But the reality is that these are probably just very ordinary people who were trying to do something different. Their stories were probably quite boring until the day that war was declared and then they did whatever they could to survive. You kind of see the specialness in them. And they're willing to share it. I think the process of sitting opposite someone with a pen and paper is a very disarming one. <laughs> and um, some people don't want to talk about it because they don't ever see themselves as heroes. And some people want to talk way too much. And some people want to share because it feels therapeutic. Some because they're just being polite. Some because they feel it will make a difference. And others not at all. So it's just trying to capture those oral histories, really. And the drawings are kind of visual prompts to that. Well, they're also visual histories and sort of filtered through your eyes and mm. and, and it feels hands. nice to show them. I feel yeah. like a relief when I get to show them or talk about them out loud because that's sort of me keeping up my end of the bargain. I feel incredibly grateful. I want to make sure that I get to some of Paul's questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> he sent me a list. Well, very first thing he's got on his list is to tell us about the general. Do you know what he's talking about? Um, if not, it's okay. So many generals. I met an awful general in Yemen. He lived in a condo in the desert. But I think he's referring to this story which loads of journalists were embedded in Iraq, in Mosul in 2017. Some of them for much longer than me. But for a couple of days, we sat on a rooftop in West Mosul during the kind of Golden Division's fight against the Islamic State, the Golden Division oh, yeah. in the Iraqi army. And it was kind of surreal. I found myself actually feeling very comfortable, although we were sort of asked to keep our heads down and there's obviously a lot of loud noises. Anyway, in amongst it all, there was this general who was sitting there very peacefully, had his binoculars looking across the city, drinking a cup of tea, having a cigarette, and everyone else is like diving around and he's ordering in this missile strike. And at the right moment, he tells all of the journalists to put their cameras on the wall and press record and they record the scene across the town, and the missile comes in from the sky and explodes in this sort of picturesque mushroom cloud. And those are some of the images that we associate with that war. He was and staging. He was staging it, yeah. And that is, I guess that is the reality of that's often what happens. Anyway, I made a drawing of this, which was never really paid attention to by anyone. But it just sort of stuck in my mind as, you know, it isn't news what I drew, but it is also what happened. And so there are these two or three or four different versions of what was happening on that rooftop and the, a truth, they all are of equal value. So that really has driven my work. This idea that the modern media industry has a quite narrow set of tools to capture, yeah. deliver news to you for a price by a deadline and into a format which you may or may not be watching at 10 o'clock or you might be watching 30 seconds of on your phone. And that's quite limiting when you're trying to comprehend any of these places, Palestine, Iraq, Syria, whatever, yeah. whatever the issue is. So this drawing is just, for me, a chance to spend a little more time with some of those topics. Can we take a little step back out of the sort of intensity of it a little bit? I'm wondering sure. if you could also, it's also one of Paul's questions, I think it's really important, um, if you could tell us a little bit about the history of this kind of reporting. You said earlier mm. when we were very first talking, and I mentioned Joe Sacco, and there's others that do it in a more contemporary sense, but you said that this is, used to be the way it was done. 
I mean, the history of people using drawing as a means of communicating is kind of documented from I mean, 200,000 years old. Yeah, 5,000 years ago on the Chalvez caves. But in more modern terms, after like the great sort of 15th, 16th century map makers and various other sort of location drawings, I guess 1842 was the start of the Illustrated London News in the absence of photography, sent artists around the world to put images to their articles. And that sold tens of thousands of copies in London. So there was a really strong association between art and war and medicine and art and... The good old days. Yeah. And Rodinson drew things like Gin Lane. I mean, they were characterised, but they were also artists' interpretations of what was happening and a very popular, engaging audiences. So, yeah, and then you fast forward slowly through history, cameras become less wieldy and more accurate, and then there's a pressure for governments during wars to use artists on the front line in World War One and Two, partly because they were what people are used to seeing, but also because they were easier to control an artist's painting than it is to control a photograph from sure. a propaganda point of view. And in Britain, we had people like Felix Topolsky and Paul Nash and Neverson and Singer Sargent and all that lot. And then in the 60s and 70s, illustration was used a lot in adverts and in the news, but always sort of waiting for photography to take the space. Mm -hmm. And that happened quite quickly. And a few sort of diehards stuck out. Cheryl Scarf was sent to Vietnam. Paul Hogarth travelled a lot with Graham Greene in America. Ronald Searle was drawing in 1942 in the prison of war camp in Japan. So these sort of lasted. Linda Kitson in the Falklands. So there's a rich history. There's a formula that works. I'm not inventing anything. It's like a sort of language, a sort of dialect that we all used to speak. And now it's sort of as if we've forgotten that it was something that we all used to understand. And so when you use it, everyone's saying, oh, yeah, but actually I just speak photography. Well, that comes to my next question, also from Paul, which is how in general has the reaction been from what you might call more sort of mainline photojournalists or, or yeah. journalists? I mean, individually, it's always great. Uh -huh. People are kind and I travel a lot with journalists. There's no competition there. Lots of my friends are doing brilliant things in Iraq and Ukraine and all the places that I've been and that you see on the news. But I think the difficulty is just getting things into a mainstream media. There's not enough space in print anymore. It's difficult to fit drawings into a 60-second TikTok, and I'm not sure if I want to. So it's really the sort of system that I think is not necessarily doing us service. This is part of why Bill Watterson stopped drawing Calvin and Hobbes comics. Right. Is it? Because he that. didn't tolerate any longer the, the shrinking space. It yeah. made him feel like, what's, what's the point? What am I yeah, doing this for? but my work has been well represented in places like The Guardian and in uh, this book, which is published by Walker Books in Candlewick, and in some short film. It's nice to have it out, but uh, <laughs> it's I've okay got this if sort you of did, romantic yeah. idea that it could be part of a regular column in a newspaper. In contrast to the intimacy we were talking about earlier, I suspect I'll relate to whatever you say on many levels because I'm a scientist and I'm supposed to be objective. And journalism at least implies a level of objectivity mm. that that I feel like I see in the writing. Yeah. But I wonder where you see yourself resting in terms of objectivity when you're yeah. doing illustrations that are by definition sort of subjective. Yeah, they are. And they have become very personal. And I think that would be one of my criticisms of illustrative journalism is that it's so difficult not to tell a story on behalf of the person that's sat in front of you and agreed to be still or tell you their story or 
sit with their child so that they sit still. And that is really difficult. I'm also not trained to be a journalist, so I'm really just copying everybody else. But uh, <laughs> I like the writing to be a commentary of a more kind of straightforward commentary of who was there and where it was and what was the place on the map. But one of the ways that I have sidestepped that conundrum in a very cowardly way this time <laughs> is that instead of writing it myself, I've just recorded the interviews with people that I met in Ukraine and transcribed their words as they told them. And in that sense, they just stand, if nothing else, as a, a record of that time, a first draft of history which will be corrected or argued with or stand as, as what it happened. It seems like that has also a rich history, at least in 20th century you know, yeah. you know, recording well, I'm excited about that being maybe a format that could work mm -hmm. in other subjects as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. But ultimately, I feel very attached to the people, so it's not very objective. It would be impossible to be completely objective. I think you're right. I'm not sure that's what we want, is it? I'm not sure it's a realistic goal to do something other than I that. I mean, that, the way I uh, see it as a scientist is... I try to acknowledge my subjective perspective on things, and it's my peer's job in mm. part. I mean, I'll give it my best shot, but it's my peer's job to extract the objectivity from it. Yeah. I mean, you definitely need to be objective, Yeah, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> I don't know if I do, but I think it's, it's, there's like a great standard to be set there, and I'm very aware of that when I'm working. Yeah. You said you started with art first. Growing up and developing your skills, did you ever also have deep political interest? Or is that something that developed? I think it developed probably because I'd spent 10 years at school in England feeling quite safe and had you know, a very nice upbringing. So the idea of going to West Africa or the Middle East where people often said, you know, it's dangerous or be careful or have you had your jabs or will you take security or you mustn't go there because, you know, this has happened. That only really ever drove me to go and visit and see for myself. As, as partly, I guess, as a young man because I wanted to prove that I could do it, but also partly because I wanted to prove that they were wrong, that it wasn't like that. And it wasn't like that. You actually got a few questions about this, was just asking about how you compartmentalize these scenarios that you're drawing and, and these situations that you find yourself in. Um, and your answer was basically like, I don't, you know, I, I don't compartmentalize. Like, it's all about the connection. Um, and it occurred to me that the drawing itself is the processing of what's going on. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I think the compartmentalizing is the bit that is more traumatic. We don't need to put things in different boxes to make sure that they're locked away and safe and we don't ever visit them again. I'm often getting messages from far away and I feel guilty about not being there. Or, But uh, they kind of sit quite comfortably with me, those stories, and I like that they are there and that they can make me feel uncomfortable or sad at any moment. And I like receiving emails from... Uh, people in Ukraine saying that something has happened or that they're okay in equal measure. So um, maybe I'm just not aware of the the cliche and that in 20 years' time I'll be locked in a darkened room and not be able to speak to anyone. But it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't feel like that at the moment. 
you also got some questions about developing artistic style from from some like artistic students. Yeah. Um, and something you said was that you know kind of your first jobs, your first paid jobs are are really what's going to determine the pathway that you take as an artist. And um, mm. what was the first job that took you down this path? The first work of this nature was at university and we had a project. It wasn't a job, but it was reportage. And I drew a little girl who was having, she was four and she was having a large melancytic nevus removed from her nose, which is a big brown birthmark. And it was, I drew the process, which was happened in the hospital in London. Uh, these quite brutal operations to remove this mole from her, obviously kind of childlike face. And I documented it with her and her parents. And I guess sort of at the end of the process, I realised that it wasn't as much about the girl's decision. It was more her parents' expectation of what she would look like. And that was a really interesting angle, I think. I don't think I necessarily got it across, but it, that developed how my work was going to look. You are, as I said yesterday, led by what people saw last time. They want what you, they want to say to you, yeah, I'd like a drawing like the one you did last time. So that's a really difficult cycle to break out of. I mean, it's obviously possible, but it's, if they're giving you cash for it, it's, that's, you know, artists famously needing cash to get to the next job, really. A theme in your talk last night, but also in this conversation today, is this distinction that you seem to be drawing between fast media and slower forms of media. Yeah. Where do you draw those, those lines of distinction, and, and what do you see as something that we maybe need to revisit? I think that we live in a world that is increasingly interconnected and we're supposed to be you know, available to anybody anywhere in the world via our phones. And yet we don't appear to have a better understanding of any of the issues or any of the other people that share it with us. And I think that in part that is down to the system that delivers delivers us the news of the of other people that share the planet and there are many things that are wrong with that system as we are beginning to learn and so whilst it's not really going to be anything that I can ever really influence I think that it is understood that a slower version of that news would be important drawing is a contribution to that side of things and unlikely to be anything more than that in itself, but I think it's an important one to have. When I think of like the stories that I want to show my 14-year-old brother, who's obviously only communicating on Snapchat and only communicates on WhatsApp because he thinks that's what old people do, as he tells me. I want to show him things that, have, that take time or that are made by hand, uh, not produced on a computer, that have a human touch to them. I know I have an extremely visceral reaction to the influx of, of AI-generated text and images that have, have mm. been sort of pro proliferating a lot in the last six months. Um, but I'd love to hear your opinions and reactions to that. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great for the creative industry. If you're creating uh, pieces of clip art to go on a, an enormous image vault that can be selected by people around the world, then you might be out of a job. But if people are truly artisans and making things with their hands or drawing or making music or interviewing or 
anything that is touched by a human hand, I think is only going to be more interesting and more valuable and more sought after. Learn more about George Butler and his work at his website, georgebutler.org. Special thanks to the Virginia Quarterly Review for arranging our meeting. Symposia is a production of the Brown College Community Media Initiative and the Virginia Audio Collective. This episode was produced by Sage Tangway and Jim Cohn, with production assistance from Sophia Moore and Esha Shirley. Subscribe to Symposia in our sister show, Circle of Willis, wherever you get your podcasts.